Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville. Fiber Internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from Integrity First Insurance, provider of Erie Insurance, for all your auto, home, life, and business insurance needs. More information at 812-269-8897 or integrityfirstinsuranceservices.com. And from Bloomington Health Foundation, partnering with local organizations and citizens to invest in programs that address our community's health needs. Bloomington Health Foundation, improving health and well-being takes a community. More at bloomhf.org. And from Estate and Downsizing Specialists, LLC, offering complete turnkey services for estate and downsizing clients, from initial consultation through home cleanout to final real estate and personal property sales. More at edsindiana.com. Welcome to Noon Edition on WFIU. I'm your host, Bob Zaltzberg, along with co-host Lori Burns-McRobbie. Today we're talking with our guests about gun violence and school safety. We have three guests joining us today. In the studio with us is Stephanie Whiteside, Carmel Clay School's mental health coordinator and a children's therapist. And also joining us over Zoom are Julie Questenberry, who is the incoming president of the Indiana Association of School Resource Officers, and Chaka Coleman with the Paganelli Law Group in Indianapolis. If you have questions or comments, you can send them to us at news at indianapublicmedia.org. You can also join us on the air by calling 812-855-0811. And if you would prefer, you can follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. You can send us questions there. I also want to mention before we get uh, too far into the show that we we invited some lawmakers to come on with us. We weren't successful in getting any. We invited uh, Senator Todd Young, and his office was very gracious and told us that um, he was otherwise committed and he would like to do the show sometime. Uh, we also uh, contacted Senator Braun, and he was not able to make it, and we contacted Senator Roderick Bray from the Indiana Legislature, and uh, Rod Bray has been on several times before. He's been a great guest for us, but he couldn't come today either. So we're going to talk uh, in uh, – we're going to talk about these issues, very difficult issues. And Julie Questenberry, I want to start with you as a school resource officer and the incoming president of the Indiana Association of SROs. How you know how have things changed in the schools, and and how difficult is it when when there's another high profile school shooting? You know, as a school resource officer, these things they should uh, they hit home with us. Uh, you know, whenever we go to whenever we make the decision to work in a school building, you know, our job in a day is not to see how many kids we can get in trouble. Our job in a day is to to ensure safety. That That's number one for us. And those kids, they become our kids. And when this happens nationally, it's it, it's it's tragic to everyone, but it specifically hits home for us. And, and it drives home the point of training and how important that is. In fact, uh, Ch- Chase Lide, our current president, who was going to be in here earlier, um, he, he's doing active shooter training today because training should be a priority with SROs because that's something that is very specific. The National Association of School Resource Officers says SROs should be carefully selected specifically trained and properly equipped. And that training piece is critically important. Yeah, the training piece and and the equipment piece, we can talk about both of those things as we get uh, further along in the show. Um, Stephanie, also, you were the first person named to be the Carmel Clay School's mental health coordinator. It's a position that uh, I wish we didn't need them in the schools, but how how do school shootings like this have an impact on you and your kids? Sure. Well, these events, um, they not only bring up some concerns about just physical safety in the schools, but also psychological safety, especially as events continue or as um, children are exposed to these types of events. Um, And it's harmful not only for our students, but then also our teachers, our administrators, our school resource officers, 
all of those interacting with our students as well, because they really are the safe adults who are trying to help and support our students. And so we also want to make sure that they're taking care of themselves as well um, as we continue to have this discourse and the discussions um, related to these types of events. How do you uh, follow up on something like just happened in Texas? Yeah, well, I think it's really important um, for our students and for our families that we are reassuring them that our buildings are safe. That's not only physically safe, but also psychologically safe. So we are providing information on how they can support their children, um, depending on development, and then also providing information on self-care and just how to have those conversations and what we do in the buildings to promote a sense of belonging and connectedness, because that is very important when we talk about prevention. Yeah. Go ahead, Lori. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm just, you know, I think all of us were putting ourselves in the position of being the parents of those, those children in Texas and, of course, back uh, in 2014 with Sandy Hook. Uh, very difficult to think about it. And I think even for children who aren't in those schools, aren't even the same age as those school children, it's, uh, it's a kind of indirect trauma. And it is difficult to figure out what to say. Um, and uh, I've had uh, talked with parents who um, are torn between having a conversation with their kids and and keeping the news turned off and not bringing it up at all. And what what do you what do you tell parents specifically about how to talk to their kids? That is a great question, and it's one I do receive a lot of questions about. Um, well, first, I you know I think it's important that we're really assessing what they know first before we go into a conversation or make that decision. I believe that um, as far as these events, you know, I I know about the event. I know very little, though, because I deal in mental health, so I make sure that I am very careful about what I am exposing myself to every day. And I encourage others to do that as well. So I do agree, like, turning off the news, making sure we're monitoring their social media use so that they're not overexposed because research has found that those that watch the news over and over again and are inundated with this information show the same type of symptoms as those that were actually there at the event. So it's very important that we are monitoring that. Then I would assess, you know, what do they know and what questions do they have? Our younger children may not know a thing about it, and that's okay, and we don't have to start talking about that with them. However, It's typical that our elementary school age children will have a lot of questions. Mm -hmm. And then as they get into adolescence, not only will they have questions, but they're also going to have ideas and thoughts about it. They may even have ideas on prevention and response. And so it really becomes empowering them to take action and however they feel it may be donating. It may be supporting. It may be um, just being a helper somewhere, but, you know, helping them find some action so that they can cope through this. Yeah, that's very good. I want to ask um, uh, Chaka um, about, you've done some uh, Chaka's with, I think as we said at the beginning, with the Paganelli Law Group, and you've done some very good research on uh, gun laws and gun violence um, and how state governments can make a difference that in a way that still protects people's Second Amendment rights. Can you, can you talk about that research? Yeah, so state governments have historically struggled with how to address issues of violence in our communities. And my co-fellow and I dedicated ourselves to this scholarship topic for almost a year. And we really couldn't even touch on all of the underlying issues and potential solutions to gun violence. But ultimately, um, the carrying of a firearm by an educated and otherwise responsible firearm owner often still ends in violence. And so our scholarship really concluded that handgun violence itself is somewhat of a public health crisis. Um, Even with the proliferation of mass shootings, especially of school children, the conversation hasn't changed much for either gun rights or gun control. So firearms possession is essentially American culture. We teach our children that the Minutemen valiantly took up arms to fend off British tyranny. And that same conceptualization of bravery has been ingrained in the fabric of the American psyche. Yes, indeed. And and I think actually um, this, this whole 
set of issues around gun safety, I mean, in some ways that may be a slightly easier topic to discuss in this current kind of um, polarized political environment. But but I think even there, we, we you know, you get some uh, resistance to to those sorts of things. I think your point about even resp- even in homes with responsible gun owners, um, I, we just saw some statistics that came out very recently that gun violence is now the leading cause of death for children under the age of eighteen, and a lot of those that that uh, those those deaths are happening in homes uh, with registered, legally owned, responsibly kept uh, and used firearms. Um, to, what have you done? Uh, some additional research in that area as well, and and uh, what have you what have you looked at with respect to the kind of data that might have an influence on legislation? I think it really comes down to access. So another portion of the conversation that needs to be talked about is not only firearm homicides, but also suicides right. and non-fatal shootings. So non-fatal shooting injuries are not added to handgun violence counts. And if they were, um, handgun violence incidences would surpass suicides. And sometimes non-fatal shootings um, are double or triple the amount of gun hom- homicides that occur yearly. So if the homicide rate drops, but non-fatal shootings continue to rise, that's not a win for our community. Indeed not. Mm-hmm. We've, we've talked about, um, you know, there are lots, lots of directions we can go here. And I know your research, um, Chaka, was about gun violence and gun laws. So what can state governments do? I mean, what, what would you suggest? Is it an access issue, access to firearms? So many state codes preempt local governments from passing stricter firearms laws. So it really is a state level um, issue, except in Colorado, I believe in 2020, they actually allowed for local governments to enact stricter firearm laws than the state government. And we'll kind of see what the outcome of that is going to be over the years. But um, the Supreme Court has kind of affirmed that firearm ownership is an individual right in the 2008 Heller decision. Um, But they also said that the right to keep and bear arms is subject to reasonable regulation. So in states like Massachusetts and Connecticut and Hawaii, they have stricter gun laws and they also have some of the lowest uh, gun death rates in the nation. So obviously no licensing system or background system is going to be foolproof, but Connecticut is a great example because when they implemented a licensing system for firearm purchases, not just to carry a firearm, but to purchase one, both firearm homicides and suicides were reduced by 40%. Yeah, I know Indiana is not going to be one of those states that says that local communities could have stricter Mm -hmm. firearm laws then I, I believe Bloomington tried to do that at one point and I don't believe that worked. So let me let me give our phone numbers again and the way that you can reach us. We're talking about a pretty um, uh, current topic of gun safety, potential gun control legislation and what we can do about um, school shootings, uh, handgun violence, any kind of violence uh, using firearms. You can reach us, news at indianapublicmedia.org, or you can reach us at Noon Edition on Twitter. Send us questions there. You can also call us and go on the air at 812-855-0811. I wanted to go back to Julie, who's uh, with the school resource officers, and, you know, talk about that. this in terms of some of Chaka's research and access to firearms. You're, You're a police officer, um, the state ju- recently uh, sort of, well, they they ignored what a lot of police officers said and changed the law as of July 1st so that you don't have to license handguns in the state. I, you know, I don't know how political you want to get about this because, you know, you, were, you joined the program uh, as a substitute late. But um, do you see, you know, do you see any, any – gun legislation that you think would be a logical step after, you know, what's, you know, to combat what's been happening? I would say this, that more guns are not the answer to just let 
let everybody have a gun. That's, you know, even the presidential address, whatever side of the fence you're on, uh, the presidential address yesterday um, spoke to that, that more guns are not the answer. Maybe the right people. And when we talk about SROs that are properly equipped, those are the, the people that have the training. Those are the people that you want uh, to be able to use lethal force if necessary. Not any old person that just has the ability to walk into a gun store and buy a gun. That's just dangerous. There's yeah. also uh, been discussion of you know arming teachers. What, what do you think of that strategy? I would also <laughs> echo what I just said, okay. that more guns are not the answer. It has to be people that have had proper training and that are properly equipped. So in addition to the 40-hour training to be a school resource officer, which will be legally required in uh, July, no, that's after there's a certified police officer. So you're talking a 16-week law enforcement academy plus training specific to that job. You know, a a school resource officer, I, I said before, is... You know, you need very specific training for dealing with youth. No more than everyone's qualified to be a sniper on a SWAT team. No, not every officer is qualified to be a school resource officer. So those are the people that you, those are the good guys that you want with the guns. So, Julie, I wanted to, to talk a little more about just what what the kind of preparation you actually spoke to that. That's very helpful. And I'm, it's interesting when you look at the state of Indiana, and this is true, of course, in um, many, many states where their communities vary in terms of size and some urban, some rural. And so, you know, issues um, get play out differently in those communities. Are, are you, as school resource officers, how much training or awareness building uh, exposure do you have to how you how would you would approach things in let's say a rural school district as opposed to an urban one? You know, uh, it's different district to district. We have you know as part of the Indiana Association of School Resource Officers, we have guys where their next available unit is going to be a half hour away, and so the training that we receive and uh, and our thought process in training and as we go to work in a day needs to be specific to what we're going to encounter when we go to school. Every day when I walk in my buildings, I'm thoughtful. I think worst case scenario right now, what would I do? Because your body won't go to places your brain has never been. So, yeah, just to follow up on that, I mean, what went through your mind when you saw what was happening in Texas? I mean, do you try to envision something like that happening in one of your schools in Columbus and say, what what would I do if this occurred? Yeah, I think of that every day. Whenever I put my uniform on and I go to school, go to my buildings to protect my kids there, I'm thoughtful of that. And the SROs on our team, same thing. Uh, we think about these things. And it's, you know, the, sure, it hits home. And as I'm reading about these kids specifically and it's it rips my heart out i'm a mom too and it rips my heart out and it makes you want to you know take a real hard look at lessons learned because we have to do that you know columbine tactics you know that was april 20th 1999 we're a long time from that now and you know we learn as events happen how to do better and when we know better we must do mm-hmm. better yeah, definitely. I wanted to, to sort of turn things back to um, to mental health issues a bit. Both both the obviously the effect of these kinds of of incidents, but also the the degree to which uh, mental health is implicated in the motives that the shooters have. And uh, I think this is where the um, red flag laws come into play. Although they're not specifically, I don't think, just about people who show signs of mental instability. Um, Chaka, can you say, just give us some background now on where we are with red flag laws in Indiana, and uh, and uh, we heard recently the governor said the state could possibly tighten our red flag laws. What, what exactly is going on there? 
So Indiana's red flag law was implemented in 2005 after Officer Jake Laird was killed by an individual who had his firearms removed after a mental health incident, but they were returned to him. And that's what caused Officer Laird's subsequent death. So the red flag law allows law enforcement to seize firearms from dangerous persons. And that's as directed by a court. So it's a judicial process and they have findings and things of that nature. And I think that the Indiana law has been highly effective. We can't necessarily quantify the lives that have been saved, you know, due to the proper implementation and process of a red flag law case. But what we have seen is that when the law isn't followed and a case does not reach a judicial officer, you know, unintended consequences occur. Yeah. And I, I want to keep going with this, too, because I, I you know, we all the, there's always this conversation about when we need to, you know, yes, gun violence is an issue we have to do something about. We also have to do something about mental health. And of course, both those things are absolutely true. Um, what is if you have this information, perhaps uh, one of our other guests does, too. What is the relationship between uh, m- mental mental health, mental illness and sh- and the act and those these acts of violence? Because obviously people who have been diagnosed with mental illnesses by a long shot don't all go out and get guns and shoot up a school. Mm-hmm. Stephanie, do you want to take sure. that? Yeah, and I agree. And I appreciate you saying that, too, because I think it is important to highlight that um, the majority of individuals who have been diagnosed with a mental illness are not violent. Um, they're not at risk for, you know, um, engaging in these actions. It is a small percentage. And I and I also think we need to consider that there's not just one answer. So when we look at the profile of an individual who commits these, you know, atrocities, we really need to look at all factors influencing that individual. So there may be mental illness. There may be familial issues. There may be um, generational traumas. There may be a lack of connection to the community. And so we really like to look at what are the protective factors that individuals have and then what are those risk factors. Um, In fact, most individuals, um, and not most individuals, I shouldn't say that, but many individuals um, that are going to take any action are more likely to harm themselves than Mm -hmm. somebody else. And so really looking at all aspects and that there is not just one thing we can pin this on. And I don't want to be cliche. It really does take a village, though, because we often find that there are many systems that this individual has interacted with. There are some warning signs, but... I think that makes it even more important that schools are layering those resources and really connecting with students with not only looking at, you know, psychological safety or physical safety, but mental health services. Also making sure that there are resources for students who may need additional assistance with anything from housing, utilities, you know, free reduced lunch. Um, also looking at their connections to their peers and adults in the building. Um, we do survey our students to to see how they feel and to get their insight into the connections they're making in the building, because we want every one of our students to have at least one strong connection with an adult in our building. So I think it's really looking at the layers and that, yes, mental health or mental illness may be one aspect of that, but there are multiple aspects that are influencing that individual and their actions. Let me give you the, our contact information one more time, news at indianapublicmedia.org if you want to phone us or, or you want to send us a note uh, at Noon Edition. If, you want, if you're following us on Twitter, you can also join us on the air by calling in at 812-855-0811. I want to, um, to ask about just – you know whether we're making any progress now, and and what kind of uh, I'm going to ask for your opinions on you know whether you see progress. And I want to preface this by saying, less than two years ago, in August of 2019, we did a show here on mass shootings and mental health. After three mass shootings, one was in Dayton, Ohio, one was in El Paso, one was in Gilroy, California. 31 people were killed. The one in Dayton, one of our guests was Sean Lamb, who was a Richmond, Indiana resident, who was playing music in Dayton on the night of the shootings in downtown Dayton. That was less than two years ago, and here we are having another conversation about mass shootings and gun violence. Uh, if we're not making any progress, what 
what is the problem? And are we at a place now where perhaps we can start making progress? Chuck, I'm going to start with you on this, and then we'll go to Stephanie, and then we'll go to Julie. I think that many citizens are not aware of the potential dangers of firearms violence. And so that's kind of where firearms education comes into play. We have to remember the humanity in it. I believe that Julie said earlier that there is an issue of a difference between rural attitudes towards firearms and urban attitudes towards them, different uses, um, different customs. I myself grew up around firearms, but my father made sure to educate me about what horrors lie behind that piece of metal. Uh, So there is a collective fear and an expectation that so many things can and do go wrong. And so we're more vigilant. And I think that the same conversation needs to happen on a much larger scale when it comes to our school system, when it comes to, you know, arming of passengers or spectators at sporting events. We kind of need to look at this from a holistic approach and remember that there's a lot of humanity even within our police community. Um, We are all human beings and and very imperfect. And to move this conversation forward, we have to treat firearms as if there is an educational component that comes with being able to possess one. Okay. Um, Let me switch the order and go to Julie since since, uh, Chaka mentioned uh, police and and uh, people who are in law enforcement, um, what what do you think about this? You know, and are we making progress? And you know, how would you want to move forward? Um, I think I'm going to speak to the value of SROs in this, and that is that when you have an off a school resource officer in there uh, that's properly trained, um, you know. A big chunk of what we do, so we operate on a triad model. We're a teacher, a police officer, and an informal counselor. Of those, we spend most of our time in the informal counselor role, and that's building relationships with kids. It's all about the relationships. So because we're in the schools getting involved with our kids, we know, uh, you know, if little Johnny's having a tough day or, you know, your kids that um, – maybe have struggles at home that's a critical piece of this and when you talk to mental health and the kids that are you know struggling your school resource officers that are in the buildings every day and know your kids that is how i think that um that is a bridge i believe uh to make this has got to stop and that's a bridge to it is the relationship piece it's critical yeah Uh, we had a, a question on twitter that i'm I'm not familiar with this, but maybe you or uh, Julie can address this. Uh, the question is, are schools in Indiana getting any training in the Salem-Kaiser cascade system? It is proven to re- reduce these violent acts where it is implemented. Are you familiar with that, either one of you? I am not familiar with that, no. Oh, okay. Yeah, and I um, – so – I'm very fortunate in that um, in our department in student services, um, I work with an individual who is a safety expert pretty much for the state, and he does an excellent job of making sure that all the physical security systems are in place, and we have made so much progress. It's really exciting to see. It gets a little bit difficult, though, because I know um, when events like this happen, um, there's a lot of ideas about how you can encourage, you know, physical safety or ensure physical safety. And I think it is, um, and I believe Julie said too, it, you have to know your buildings, you know, every building's layout, um, anywhere from just traffic patterns, things like that. Um, it gets very in depth. And so I think, um, there's not a one size fits all, although there are best practices and, um, you really have to look at the district, the layout in each building. So I am not familiar with that, but, um, you know, I, I think that there's just many different things to look at and there's just not one size fits all. Yeah. Different, different schools. Mm-hmm. I, I want to just kind of keep going on this. You know, what would you, what would you tell perhaps a lawmaker if, you know, we've been able to get uh, one of them in the room with us today or at any point? Um, I know there have, there was uh, uh, there there was money that came from the state uh, for uh, for school safety. 
uh, most of which, is, if I understand, I may be wrong on some of the facts here, but that most of it went to uh, increasing police, increasing uh, law enforcement. I don't know if that included more school resource officers. And Julie, I don't, I don't know if you, if this is ringing a bell with respect to legislation, recent, uh, recent re, a recent appropriation, uh, and whether that did increase the ranks of school resource officers, or if, and if that is, if not, maybe even if so. If uh, one of the things you might recommend is that the state invest more in school resource officers, do we have yeah, enough? there is. There, I'm sorry. Yeah, there are grants out there uh, right now that are specific to hiring school resource officers, and there's a reason for that. Uh, I said that relationships piece is so important, and each each building, you know, it has a personality all of its own. Anyone that works in education will be able to say that each building has a personality all of its own, and and it's players inside of it. And so SROs have an opportunity to get to know those folks. And, you know, SROs, the reason that grant money is appropriated for uh, police is because equipment only does so much. You know, you hear people sometimes talk about metal detectors and how that might be an answer. And let's pretend for a second that someone that's coming into a building to hurt people is going to go in the main entrance to try to... um, you know, to make their way. That doesn't happen all the time. And it's foolish for us to think that that is the answer. Um, So I believe that SROs getting in there and trained and having those relationships with kids and knowing the day in and day out details is, is a piece to making this better. We have a question, another question about SROs, um, Julie, and it is how does having diverse SROs, not all white, impact relationships with students. What are we doing to improve diversity of SROs? Um, I think, I, I love that question. I think it, it is important uh, to have diverse SROs. It's important to have diversity in teachers. Uh, that's that's across the board. And so I can't spe- speak su- specifically to the hiring of SROs because obviously when someone applies to do this job, they have to be carefully selected and specifically trained for it and have the have a background to be able to do the job. But maybe recruitment uh, of those individuals. Um, but as far as the training of the people, I said that in July that it's going to be re- mandated that they have 40 hour training. One of those blocks is working with diverse students. So that is going to be a required training for all officers that are working with youth. I want to follow up quickly with with Stephanie because uh, we talked about money going to put more SROs in school. How much uh, funding has gone to mental health help for schools? So we were fortunate. We were one of the first districts to pass a safety referendum in 2019. And we really um, used like a three-prong approach where we looked at adding additional school resource officers and training. We also looked at um, providing mental health resources. So we do have social workers and counselors that are employed by the district that are in every school to support our students and families. We also have a contract with a mental health entity for those students who need more intensive services. But then we've also added a significant amount of school resource officers so that we will have one in every building And just like Julie stated, they make amazing relationships with our students. They are there to connect with our students and support our students. And we work hand in hand. So the mental health providers, the mental health professionals, our administrators, myself and my department work very closely. I interact with them every day. And we're often, you know, discussing what are the needs of this building? How can we help? How can we support our students? And so I think that taking that approach where, once again, um, we're not just looking at one area, but we're really trying to look at the whole child and how we can better support that child and um, the child within the community is the the best practice and just the, the way that we decided to move forward. Excellent. I want to come back to um, the, the kind of legal scene. Um, Chaka, you may be able to speak to this. Which I understand there's a concealed carry law that goes into effect in less than a month. Um, could, could you speak a little more about that and, and what, you, what your view is, and actually to all three of you, um, how this is going to potentially um, affect 
the things we're talking about? I think the officers need the tools to identify prohibited offenders who are illegally possessing firearms. Um, they also need the tools to anticipate firearms usage, to solve crimes after they occur, um, and data collection and dissemination between agencies assist with those efforts. And it's a really important conversation to have. Um, how does an officer know whether or not I'm prohibited from carrying a firearm if I do not have that um, firearms license? And that's probably a lot of uh, some of the pushback from the police officers who were not in favor of this bill. I think that as long as legislators are thinking about being innovative and creating ways for officers to remain safe and to have that data and at their fingertips, it's probably not gonna affect us um, significantly as a state. What, what, could you, what are some of those ways though, if there, if there isn't a kind of, um, if, if they can't uh, detect whether someone who shouldn't be carrying a firearm is carrying one, what, what, what are the tools that are available to law enforcement to deal with that? Well, currently your driver's license kind of has a lot of information attached to it. They know who you are. They know whether or not you are a veteran or active duty military, whether you um, have a firearms license, everything about you, correct? So when you walk up to someone and you say, then you're just standing there with a gun in your hand. Say I'm in a parking lot having, you know, my best life with a gun in my hand. As it stands, if I simply possess that firearm, that alone, without anything further, I'm not doing any criminal activity, is not enough to provide reasonable suspicion for an officer to detain or to arrest me. Now, if he asks me, what's your name? And I say, my name is Daisy Flower. And if he has no way to prove who I am. At that point, I'm not committing a crime. I'm just holding a firearm, which according to the Penner case, is not illegal. So having um, fingerprint scanners is a great way to be able to identify individuals, making sure that the information that goes from the courts to police officers is accurate and current. We have 92 counties in the state of Indiana, all of which have different systems that they're working on. We have the Department of Correction that has a different system that works um, not in conjunction with you know, Randolph County or something like that. We really need to have our legislators bring all of these data mechanisms into one system that allows officers to be able to do their jobs effectively and to identify people who are prohibited from carrying firearms and to also solve crimes after they occur. I want to mention that we've had a couple of tweets from Brett, and I want to read them and see if we get any reaction from any of our panelists today. One, Brett tweeted um, saying that you are more likely to be involved in gun violence if you have a gun is like saying you're more likely to be in a car accident if you're in a car. Millions of people carry and use guns safely every day. He also said, I'm all for mandatory firearms training as long as it is paid for by the state. Otherwise, it is a barrier to self-protection for low-income folks. Any reaction to either of those? Um, Julie, the, um, uh, the, his um, comparing the, you know, having a gun versus riding in a car. I would just say that... You know, there are responsible gun owners out there, but this new law does um, it. It makes some barriers for us to have. It, it sounds so easy to say that uh, we have access to all of these records and court records when we get dispatched to a call. But if you get if we get sent to a parking lot where you got someone holding a gun that's now uh, legal for them to do. And then you have a community member saying, why aren't the police doing anything? And it's very, um, it's very difficult for us to, to acquire all of that information roadside while we've got someone holding a gun and then community members feeling unsafe. What are we to do? It, it's a nightmare. It's a law enforcement nightmare. I believe in Bloomington, uh, one of the issues a few years ago was somebody had a gun on a table at one of the public swimming pools. And I think Bloomington, I think that was one of the touch points for Bloomington trying to create different kind of maybe a stricter law in the state. So it sounds like the kind of thing you're talking about. 
So, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I, Stephanie, this might be something you can. You, I think probably all three of you can speak to. But Stephanie, you in particular is is coming back to the children who are involved in in all of this. And uh, Julie, you're probably seeing this on the ground as well. Is how have their uh, questions the the way that they're expressing concern has that changed recently? Are you seeing an effect? In other words, of the what appear to be an increased um, certainly media exposure of these kinds of crimes occurring. Absolutely. I think we we definitely receive more questions. I will say we receive more questions from parents as I I feel that and even as a parent, we are now um, faced with this new reality as we're parenting and sending our our children to school thinking we are doing the best thing for them um, so that they can develop into amazing adults. And to think that we may be sending them somewhere where they could be harmed is scary. And so, you know, that's where I think it's very important that we are educating families as best we can about what is available and how we are going to help keep their children safe so that they can reassure students as well. I think that's also important or why it's important for us to, you know, when we are talking about drills, we're very careful, but also we are very um regular with our drills. We want to make sure that we're doing those because, once again, we're reassuring safety by doing that and doing that effectively. We have safety committees where we're often talking about those best practices and sharing tips and how we can support students so that our students are going to school feeling safe. And so they can answer some of those questions themselves almost as they come up because they see their school resource officer greeting them as they're walking in each day. They know how to make an anonymous tip to us if they see something that looks, you know, sketchy or something that they're concerned about. Our parents also have that opportunity as well. So I think it is very important that we're doing that education ahead of time. So unfortunately, if something like this does happen somewhere, we're able to have those resources available as well. And once again, just reaffirm physical and psychological safety for them. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Julie, did you want to add to that? Yeah, and and SROs are critical to that training piece. You know, we, our job, and whenever parents send their kids to school in a day, they have the expectation that they're not only going to come home, but come home smarter, right? And, you know, SROs, the role that we play in that is ensuring that that training gets done um, from our youngest demographic to people outside of the building and community members, because these, you know, run, hide, fight, Alice, whatever active shooter training is being done in your communities, you know, it shouldn't just be done in the school because it's, it's a life skill. So the more folks in your community that know what's going on, the more confidence uh, people have in a plan because fear is derived in the unknown. And when people know what a plan is, and even better yet, let's say that someone is planning to carry something out, I want them to know in this community they're going to get met with a fight and that we have a game plan. You know, people talk to, okay, who knows what the plan is? And I hope everyone does. They should. I have a couple of questions I wanted to follow up. One is uh, has come through our producers. What are the patterns that our guests, that the three of you, have noticed in conversations after a mass shooting uh, in terms of public discourse uh, with lawmakers, media coverage? Is it adequate? What would you like to see change? It looks like Stephanie might have a thought on this. <laughs> um, yes, and, and I go back to, I think, you know, as human beings, we want an answer for why bad things happen. And, and once again, as we're talking with children, I even normalize that. Even adults sometimes can't tell you why this happened or we're just as concerned. However, here's what we're doing to keep you safe. I think that is such an important discussion. However, I think we have to be very careful to call out one thing without having information about that, without having an open-minded discussion with others who maybe disagree with us. But I think that um, instead of pulling together to have that discussion, sometimes we start to um, have a little bit of a tug of war. And I think that can be very concerning for children who are seeing that. And it really is concerning when you're seeing the adults disagree and go back and forth and you're just really wanting to feel safe. 
And so I believe that we really need to be able to have those open discussions. We need to come together to really talk about this issue because, as you had said earlier, we're really not seeing any alleviation. It seems I was a junior in high school when Columbine happened. And unfortunately, you know, I thought that was a one-time incident and that would be it. And unfortunately, that was not the case. So it is imperative that we are talking amongst each other, but also in a respectful way where we are open to listening and hearing the other individual so that we can come together for better action when it comes to um, addressing this and mitigating these incidents. Same question for uh, Julie and, and Chaka. What what about the reaction? And is there a pattern that we see after there's a horrific incident like this that you'd like to see, you know, the pattern change or something change? Um, mm-hmm. Julie, you first. I would say uh, people go to fairly quickly, like what police should do differently or what they should have done differently in a moment. Um, and that, that happens very quickly, often without all the facts out. Um, but I'll, I'll follow that up by saying that when bad things happen, when these tragic things happen, we should take a really good and hard look at what we can do better uh, to be more tactically sound. Mm-hmm. Chaka, from your perspective. I think it's important to remember, and this sort of touches on Brett's comments as well, um, only 1%, about 1%, of non-fatal violent crime victims used a firearm in self-defense. So that education of someone on the front end is really more cost-effective. Additionally, um, taxpayers actually bear the brunt of gun violence. So 85% of gunshot victims are either uninsured or they are on publicly funded insurance. And it costs about $400,000 per shooting for police officers to investigate the shooting and the related crimes Um, If you are hospitalized for a non-fatal shooting, that's going to cost taxpayers $25,000. If you die from a fatal shooting, that's going to cost about $32,000. So when we're having these conversations, obviously there's a lot of humanity in it, but we are not, the vast majority of Americans are not utilizing firearms to protect themselves. And even with training, as we've seen in Texas, Sometimes that's not happening either because of the humanity in it. I want to follow up with you, uh, and we only have a few minutes to go, but I wanted to ask you, in your research, you know, a lot of ideas have been thrown out now. I mean, they're talking about red flag laws as being – some people are saying, yeah, that's the way to go. Some people are saying we need uh, we need more background checks. Some people are saying uh, people should people shouldn't be allowed to, to buy an AR-15 at all or – need to be at least 21 years old to buy one. Are there Were there any things that you found that you can say, I would really support that change in the law to make things safer? Well, that's a tough one. It really takes a holistic approach. I think you have all of the above, some of the above, uh, none. One thing I think does work is a very strict licensing scheme where individuals um, are not able to simply access a firearm easily, quickly, um, and without any type of background check occurring. That's one. Now, obviously, there are going to be person-to-person purchases and things of that nature, but if you have a very strict licensing scheme that doesn't allow for that and um, really great community education around the impact of firearms, you're going to have a reduction in gun violence. Okay. Thank you. Yeah, I think uh, you know. I'm just. This is this has been such a helpful conversation. Just to try to channel, I think, what, the the emotionality of the moment, if you will. Um, and I think this. You know, we're all asking ourselves, what can we do? What do we? You know, who do we even go to to say this is something needs to happen? I mean, to, to quote what President Biden was saying is, we need to act. We need to. And and the parents in Uvalde were saying we need to do something. Um, and so I think I think sort of following up on this, if 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 there was a lawmaker in front of you, um, what and Stephanie and Julie, what what's the one thing you would say? Focus on this, and is it background checks? 
um, to figure out a way to do those in a way that does protect people's Second Amendment rights, but but protects the health and safety of young children we have at the same time. About two minutes to go. So yeah. So quick, Stephanie, you quick go response. First? About a minute? Yeah, sure. I would just really encourage them to talk to people like Shaka, to talk to people like Julie, and to, you know, really talk to the building's teachers, principals, and gather that information. Because like Julie said, when we know better, we do better. And so I would really encourage them just to look at that research, to talk to those individuals who are very well educated in these events and make some decisions, you know, based off of some of that factual information. Julie? I would say invest in people. Uh, You know, relationships matter. Knowing what's going on in your building is an excellent preventative step. And having relationships with kids that are struggling and knowing who to talk to is is just critically important as we move forward. Uh, We got a quick question that is for you, Julie. The Monroe County Community School Corporation, it says, does not have a full-time SRO now and voted to disarm their SROs. Uh, This person wants your take on that. Um, SROs are properly equipped uh, by definition. That's one of the three things we absolutely should be is properly equipped. When a fireman shows up to put out a fire, they don't show up without a without water or without a fire hose. No more than when a police officer shows up uh, because people's lives are in danger, they should not show up without a gun. Properly equipped is just as important. All right. I want to thank our guests. It's been a, a great conversation today. I want to thank Stephanie Whiteside, who's been here in the studio with us. Shaka Coleman from the Paganelli Law Group. Thank you for joining us today. And also Julie Questenberry. Thanks for pinch, pinch hitting in the, in the last minute. The incoming president of the Indiana Association of School Resource Officers. For co-host Lori McRobbie, for Mike Pashkash, our engineer, and for Holden, Holden Abshire and Benta Boutier, our producers. I'm Bob Salzberg. Thanks for listening. Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville. Fiber internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from Integrity First Insurance, provider of Erie Insurance, for all your auto, home, life, and business insurance needs. More information at 812-269-8897 or integrityfirstinsuranceservices.com. And from Bloomington Health Foundation, partnering with local organizations and citizens to invest in programs that address our community's health needs. Bloomington Health Foundation, improving health and well-being takes a community. More at bloomhf.org. And from Estate and Downsizing Specialists, LLC, offering complete turnkey services for estate and downsizing clients, from initial consultation through home cleanout to final real estate and personal property sales. More at edsindiana.com.